I'm Mark Valentine. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you all. Uh, I'm not Pastor Scott. Uh, I lead a campus ministry here at App State. Uh, as well as being one of the elders at Alliance. And so uh, I think a lot of y'all knew or know that there was a a men's retreat this weekend. And so Scott wanted to attend. uh, And because of that, that that time away would have cut into his sermon prep and his uh, sermon study. And so he asked me to speak this morning so that he could uh, attend the retreat Friday and Saturday. And I've heard great things about it. That's probably why a lot of the men aren't here. Uh, They're coming back today, but I hear it's been a really great uh, weekend for them. So uh, I'm honored to speak this morning. Thanks again. Uh, I think Connor mentioned it to the staff and some of the guys that cleaned and took care of the uh, parking lot. Uh, I know somebody was here, I think, from 11.30 to like 6.30 on the tractor yesterday plowing the parking lot. So I appreciate that. Um, I'm honored to speak this morning. I, I think in a good and appropriate way, I felt the weight of this um, opportunity. And so I, I think I want to say to Scott and the other staff that often teach here, um, this is a challenge. And doing it every week, week after week as well as they do, it, it's not a small thing. On any given Sunday, our congregation, we literally have Bible scholars who have written and authored books, people who have walked with the Lord for 70 plus years, brand new believers who might be part of Freedom Farm or App State or just new to the faith. We have young children sitting in the service with their parents and literally everything else between. And so you have the task of trying to communicate the gospel in a way that we all understand each and every week and that isn't always easy. I have a friend that says the Bible is shallow enough for a new believer to wade in it, but deep enough that a theologian won't ever find the bottom. I think you and your staff display that every week when you teach. So thank you and your staff for doing that well. This morning we're going to look at my favorite Old Testament passage. I'm, a, I'm an Old Testament guy. Any of the students that come to our ministry know that. Um, but it's a great Old Testament story. So we're going to be doing that. Uh, one of the things that happens when we work with our campus ministry, I work with a, a ministry called Crew, is Crew provides summer mission opportunities for the students to travel anywhere, literally around the world, during their summer break. And then as staff, we often... Uh, we often go on these summer missions and lead those summer opportunities. And so a couple years ago, uh, before we had children, my wife and I uh, had an opportunity. I had an opportunity to lead the summer mission out in Santa Cruz, California. And it was a blast, but it was tons and tons and tons of work. Um, We had about 65 students and roughly 30 staff from all over the country that show up. We take over this little dumpy hotel Uh, We do ministry in the community. They get jobs in the area. It's a lot of work, but it's a blast, and I enjoyed every minute of it. But this is my first time leading. It's at the end of the first week, so we've had multiple long days. It's probably probably been like a 70-hour work week, and we finally have a break. We finally have a night off, and so Becca and I, my wife, we grab a pizza, and we hop in our car, and we drive north up out of Santa Cruz. So I, I don't know if many of y'all have been to the West Coast or gone to beaches on the West Coast, but they're not like North Carolina beaches, especially in Santa Cruz, which is kind of central or northern California. 
And so uh, the beaches there are usually very narrow. Uh, they're usually uh, kind of formed by the ocean that is cut kind of like these bays or these coves into these cliffs. And what you do is you usually, there's not a lot of parking. They're not like these big public beaches. You park somewhere up on the side, pull off on the side of the road, and then you can look down and you'll look down these cliffs and there'll be a little strip of sand and, and, a, and a beach there. And there's usually a path that people have worn going down to the water. And so we're out there. We find a place. We pull over. We've got this pizza. Uh, it's a deserted spot. It's pretty. The sun's setting over the ocean. That's what it does on the West Coast. We start eating. Uh, there's seagulls around. There's seals and sea lions kind of barking down in the surf. It's a deserted place, but we're, we're connecting. It's the first time in a long time. We're at this, part, we're at this uh, picnic table. There's a, a trash can maybe located right over here where these uh, uh, chairs are, and that's it. And so we're there, and uh, I look down, and way down in this little uh, beach cutout, I see something moving. I can't really make it out very well, but it's some kind of figure, some kind of person. And so I'm pretty aware of my surroundings. Uh, it's getting dark. We keep talking. And I'm kind of watching this, and this, this man, evidently he becomes a man, starts walking up the path, uh, up the trail, up the cliffs to where we're going to be. And I, I notice, first off, if this is a guy, he's a big dude. And he's coming our way. So I start looking at him a little bit more closely, and I, I, at one point I'm like, what is, what is he wearing? Like, what is going on? Like, his face, like, I'm like, is he wearing a mask? It's way before covid is he like wearing a mask or does he have like something on his face? I can't really tell. But he gets closer and closer and I realize it's not a mask. It's his, it's his beard and it's his hair. And you can literally not see anything except two eyes maybe kind of peeking out. His hair's long. His beard is enormous. And I'm watching him. And then I smell something. And it, it literally kind of o open, almost makes me gag. And this guy is kind of like the king of the homeless people, I think. Like he comes up and he, his beard is so full and thick and matted and nasty. His hair is down past his shoulders. He's barefoot. His feet are beyond disgusting. Black toenails, dirt, cuts, stained. He's got jeans on. He's got a sleeveless black shirt. But you can barely tell where his arms start and where his black t-shirt ends because he's so dirty. He's got a bag on his shoulder, but nothing else. And Beck and I are kind of like paralyzed. Like I'm watching him. He's getting closer and closer and closer. He finally climbs all the way up the path, and he walks right in front of us. Doesn't indicate that he sees us. Doesn't move his head. He walks over, walks in front of us. He shuffles over, and he goes to the garbage can, and he starts rooting around in this garbage can for food. And he grabs a Coke can and he drinks something out of there and he goes through some bags and he finds like a styrofoam container and he eats some fries or something out of there. And Beck and I are just kind of glued in place. And I would love to say that I was filled with compassion and love and I responded like Jesus and I shared my faith with him and He's actually sitting right here with us in our midst. But I didn't. Instead of Jesus and compassion 
I gave judgment and utter disdain for this man. And I vividly remember thinking, what in the world did you do to get to a place where you're so dirty and so poor? And this big, nasty, filthy, smelly, desperate, worthless guy has no value in society, and he's ruining my date night. That's literally what I thought. He eventually walks off, and Beck and I get up, and we drive away, but I can't stop thinking about what's happened and how this guy has ruined my evening. And over the next couple of days, as I'm leading this summer mission where we're out there solely to talk to people about Christ, the Lord starts doing some things in my heart. And he shows me this passage that we're going to look at this morning, and it's impacted me deeply. As I, re- as I read this story, as I studied this, this passage, I started realizing you're not any different than that gentleman on the beach. You just hide your dirt a whole lot better. I just knew how to cover up the dirt better than he did. But if you actually knew me and knew my life, at times I had been just as lonely, just as desperate, just as dirty, just as poor as he was. And I would actually argue that all of us are equally destitute and desperate. But the great hope of mankind is found in the Bible when we understand and realize that we aren't left in that state of decay. So we're going to look at this passage in the Old Testament. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not, but it's unbelievably rich and sweet. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. But before we read it, let me give you a little context, a little background about this story. There's been a civil war in Israel between uh, a king named Saul and a a man named David. And there's been a civil war for years. David has now won. And so finally, after years of strife and civil war, David defeats Saul. And he is now king of Israel. And there's a level of peace and prosperity that is there that hasn't been there because the, the country's been in this civil war. So in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, uh, David brings the ark of the Lord to his new capital in Jerusalem. In chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David and says, hey, you have this kingdom here. I will make you an eternal kingdom. Your kingdom will have somebody who will come who will reign forever. In chapter 8, and in chapter 10, actually, they are some of the bloodiest chapters in the Bible. If you read chapter 8, you see David has kind of, he's solidified what's going on in Israel. And now it's almost like he turns his attention to the threats outside of Israel. And he starts destroying people. Chapter 8, he kills two-thirds of the Moabite army. He kills 22,000 Arameans. He kills 18,000 Edomites. These are all kingdoms or people way down in the south of Israel. In chapter 10, he kills 40,000 Ammonites, and they're way up north near Syria. So David is destroying his enemies. He's securing his borders, and he's securing his throne. And then you have chapter 9 sandwiched in between 8 and 10. That makes sense. That's where 9 happens. But that's, that's where we're going to be. So read with me 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's short. It's 13 verses, but it's so unbelievably rich. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. 
they summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is, still son, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Emil in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Emil. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at, his, at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. So David has time to relax, look around. And he asked this question, hey, is anyone left of Saul descendants that are still around? You know, in, in some ways that might sound like an innocent question. I'm not so sure that it was. It does say that David asked because he wanted to show kindness, but I don't know if anybody knew that other than maybe Ziba at this point. But you got to remember, like, what is the first thing? You have to know this. What is the first thing that a new ruler does when he takes over a new kingdom? He, he's got to solidify his authority and make sure that there are no threats to his throne. It's simply what every ruler does. It happens in ancient times. If you read Greek or Roman history, if there's a new general who, who stages some kind of coup and becomes a new Caesar, like heaven help the wife and the kids of the former emperor, the former Caesar. They're all done. They're all being killed. It doesn't just happen in ancient or biblical times. Saddam Hussein was threatened by his son-in-laws and he killed them all. They were becoming popular in his army and they were starting to become maybe more popular than he, so he has his son-in-laws killed. You can't allow perceived threats to live. It doesn't just happen with men, it happens in the animal kingdom. You know, if, if a new lion takes over a pride of lions, he kills all the cubs. If you didn't learn anything from the Lion King, you should have remembered that. Like, that's what they do. You can't allow someone from another bloodline that has a right to the throne or authority or position to live. It's just not done, and the world expects that. So in verses 2 and 4, we meet a man, 2 through 4, we meet a man named Ziba, who used to work for the old king, Saul. 
and he's brought to David, and he's asked, hey, is there anyone left of Saul's line that I could show kindness to? And Ziba's like, yeah, there actually is. Ziba goes on and he gives the king three things that he needs to know. He gives the genealogy of this survivor of Saul's line. He gives a physical description and he gives his location. All of that is important. Why why are these things a big deal? One, he gives his genealogy so that David knows exactly who he's dealing with. This isn't like some third or fourth removed cousin. This is the direct line of Saul. He is, this man, Mephibosheth, is the son of the, of the crown prince. He would be the third in line if you hadn't taken the throne. He says, hey, he's got a physical description, and I'm going to give you his location because I don't want you to grab the wrong guy. He says, you'll know him because he's lame in both feet. <clears throat> he's a cripple. You can't miss him. He lives in this town. You need to know that physical things, when they're mentioned in the Bible, aren't just there to take up space. As a cripple, as somebody who's lame in both feet, there's significance that's mentioned. He's not able to work. This is an agrarian society. He's not able to work the land. He's not able to take care of animals. He can't work. He could probably beg. He's probably poor. He has no status because of the physical challenges. He has no status because he's the the grandson of the former king. So there's multiple strikes against him. You look at these verses again in verses 4. He says, because of the poverty or because of the poverty and low status, he doesn't even have his own place. I think it's interesting in verse 4 he says, uh, uh, Ziba says, he's at the house. He's not in the house of Makir. It's almost like they want to make it, make it clear, hey, he, he might be around, like I can't help that, but he isn't sitting at my table. Like he's not in my house. He's not affiliated with me. I think we need to remember that because it's about to change. We know that Lodabar was about 80 miles from Jerusalem. It's way up in the north. It's this little unassuming place far from politics and the intrigue of, the, of Jerusalem and the palace there. Nothing happens in that town, and Mephibosheth is hoping that nothing's going to happen while he lives there. He just wants to fade away. Mephibosheth has no legitimacy. He's marginalized by society. He doesn't have any friends. As the son of the crown prince, the grandson of the, def- of the, of the deposed former king, like who's going to be friends with him? If, you've are, if you become friends with him by association, you've now said, hey, I might be against the current king. You might have now become an enemy of the current king because of your association with him. He's living, he is a living threat to the current king and hoping that nobody remembers that he's even alive, but somebody remembers that he's alive. And in verse 5, Mephibosheth is brought from this town to the capital by the king. He's been called on the carpet, so to speak. I don't know if any of y'all ever got called out of class to go see the principal when you were in school. Maybe you did. Maybe you've been acting up all day around your mom, but now your dad is home, and he calls you by your full name to come see him, and you have that sinking feeling in your stomach that this is it. Like, I'm done. This is what Mephibosheth is feeling. He's called to the palace to see the king. 
What, what do you possibly think is going through his mind? What chances does he have of ever walking out of the palace alive? But I think something super interesting has happened in David's life. Maybe it was always there. Maybe it was because he's been covered in blood for so many years. Maybe he's tired of fighting. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7 when God makes a covenant with him about his kingdom that David remembers another covenant. David remembers something from his youth. For whatever reason, David remembers another covenant that was made years ago back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And it's a covenant between two best friends. A covenant between a young shepherd boy named David and a prince of Israel named Jonathan who happens to be Mephibosheth's father. And this is so great because it's the fact that that covenant was made and remembered that we see this incredible picture of God's grace. It's an incredible picture of God's grace. So let's look at what happens. Don't miss, there's a very subtle change. There's a very subtle shift that the writer makes. And I think it's important and really purposeful. Notice how formal the interaction has been between the two men that we know at this point in the story. Look at, look at the, the writings in, in verse uh, 2. The king says to, to Ziba. Verse 3, the king asked. In verse 3, Ziba answered the king. Verse 4, the king asked. Verse 5, the king. Every time, it's the king and Ziba. The king has authority and power, and there's a right reverence that is, in, that is needed in interactions with the king. But now Mephibosheth enters the picture, and look at how the story reads. What, is, what does it say in verse 6? David said. In verse 7, David said. The author wants you to see that, yes, without a doubt, there is a king who has power and authority and reverence is due. But he's also a man, and he is personal, and he has a name, and he knows your name. That's going to come back. That's incredibly powerful. Look at what happens in verse 6 through 7. The king makes him welcome. The king makes Mephibosheth welcome. The king makes a poor, desperate man who is an enemy welcome. Here's a man expecting death. He actually refers to himself in verse 8 as a dead dog. He is a dead man walking. He sees himself as a dead dog. And instead of that, verse 8, David says, you don't have anything to be afraid of, Mephibosheth. Can you imagine what it was like to hear those words wash over you? The relief that would have come when you realize you are no longer an enemy of the king. And we don't know what all is said about in verse 7, but it, it, that, that, that term, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Imagine trying to describe your best friend to a child of theirs who didn't really know them. Like, what would, it, what would you say about your best friend to one of their children who didn't, didn't ever really know them? We know what happened. We know how old Mephibosheth was. Mephibosheth was five years old when his dad, Jonathan, was killed. 
So he might have had some vague memories. 2 Samuel chapter 4 gives you that information. He might have had some vague memories of his dad. But you now have a chance to, to explain to your best friend's child about your, his dad and their friendship. I remember when I first got married, um, Becca could tell who I was talking to. If I was talking to my best friend, Keith, on the phone, which used to be you would get a call on this thing that was at your house, and it didn't tell you who was on the other line, and I would pick up, and I would hear my best friend, Keith, start talking, and we would launch into this my voice would get high. I'd get excited. I wouldn't, st- I wouldn't talk in complete sentences. We'd refer to old things. We'd laugh. And I'd get off the phone, and Beck would be like, you talked to, that was Keith, wasn't it? And I was like, yeah. She was like, I can tell by your voice that that was your best friend. If I talk about my, my closest buddies, Eric and Daniel and Keith, to this day, something changes in my voice. Imagine getting to do this with Mephibosheth. I'd be like, Mephibosheth, your dad was awesome. We, we had so much fun together. We used to run around this place. We used to get in so much trouble. There was one time we, we would dream about days when we would destroy all of Israel's enemies. We would fight side by side. We were practicing one time with swords and I cracked his hand and he put it between his legs. He was jumping around and he fell over. And we started laughing, and your dad had this weird snort when he laughed real hard. Like, that's, what, that's the gift that David has to give Mephibosheth. He gets to explain his friendship with a man that Mephibosheth doesn't know. Maybe he takes him over to a window, and he says, man, it was out on that field where your dad saved my life. Your granddad was so mad at me. And I, I, I knew that he wanted to kill me. And your dad said, I, I don't think so. But he, your dad was so smart, he came up with this idea of, hey, let's pretend like I'm practicing. And if I shoot my bow way far and I tell the guy it's beyond you, it's, you got to go find the arrow, it's way behind, behind you. That's your sign that your life's in danger and you got to go. And your dad did that for me. He saved my life. That was the last time I ever saw him. Like you get that privilege of talking to Mephibosheth about how great his dad was for the sake of your father Jonathan that's what he does the king makes a dirty worthless destitute beggar welcome I don't know if you've ever been in a place have you ever been in a place where you know without a shadow of a doubt you're in over your head a place where you have absolutely no business being in uh, this is maybe a little bit longer my 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 mom is one of, I think, eight, and she's at the very bottom of that list. So when my grandmom was pregnant with my mom, my grandma's youngest sister, who became my great aunt, was pregnant with her first. There's an accident. My great aunt, late in her pregnancy, loses the child and loses the ability to have children. And so when my mom, they were pregnant at the same time. When my mom is born, she's incredibly special to my great aunt. And all of my life, I had a special relationship with my great aunt and her husband, my great uncle. And you know people that are rich, and then you know people that are like really rich. These people were, my great aunt and great uncle were like really rich. Uh, He'd gone to Johns Hopkins. He was an engineer. He had a construction company that specialized in putting in the tanks under gas stations. 
This is after World War II, where everybody is getting a car, and gas stations are popping up everywhere, and he has the monopoly up and down the East Coast of putting in gas stations. He'd been a pilot in World War II. He had his own plane. When they were bored, they flew to Cuba or the Keys or Mexico. Uh, he installed a since he could, he put a gas pump at his house, and for probably 30 years, nobody in my mom's family bought gas. Uh, he had a huge Victorian house. They had a house on a beach. They had a boat. His house was full of antiques and paintings and oriental rugs, and I was over there all the time. They knew people in local Baltimore politics on the boards of the Peabody Institute of Johns Hopkins. I had no business being in their house, yet I was there all the time. You know what I did when I was there? I spilled grape juice and I ate Oreos like I was getting paid. <laughs> I tracked in mud. I flopped on furniture. One time they had a huge pine tree in the front of their house. I climbed probably 60 feet up in this pine tree, scooted out on this branch that overlooked their roof to their fourth floor attic, and I'd opened up a window earlier. I climbed up a pine tree, scooted out on my backside, got on the roof and went into their house. And then for some reason, at the tender age of probably nine, I decided not to walk down the steps like a normal person, but to bump down four flights of stairs. Do you know what happens when you climb 60 feet up in a pine tree? I had sap all over me. I was like Clark Griswold in Christmas Vacation. I, I, I ruined their carpet, I ruined their wallpaper, I touched doors, I touched handles. I couldn't talk about art. I couldn't talk about music or politics. I couldn't appreciate the decor. I couldn't do anything except take and use. And they loved me. And they made me feel welcomed. And that I was like the most important, important person in the world. That's what David has just done to Mephibosheth. This is what Mephibosheth is experiencing. He can't offer a thing. In fact, he's the enemy of the king but the king makes him welcome. Know what else the king does? Look at verses 9 through 13. Not only does the king make him welcome, but the king makes him worthy. Notice that the author flips back to the king language in verse 9 as he speaks with Ziba. It's denoting authority. The king makes him worthy, and the reality is he's the only one who could make Mephibosheth worthy. Mephibosheth can't do it. So often we pride ourselves on our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, work harder, fix this, do more. How heartless would it have been to have told Mephibosheth, stop limping around. Change who you are. Do better. Change your past. If he could have changed those things, he would have. But he's powerless to do that. Yet Mephibosheth receives worth and dignity and sonship because the king freely offers it. The king makes Mephibosheth worthy by giving value to his life. And in verse 11, he says, hey, from now on, you're going to be viewed as one of my sons. Like, what? This is crazy. I was an enemy, 
Now I'm a son and I didn't do anything except meet the king. In order to make Mephibosheth worthy, someone has to sacrifice something because it comes at a price. Look back at the text in verse 9. What does the king sacrifice in order to make Mephibosheth worthy? What does he sacrifice to make Mephibosheth worthy? The text says he gives up land. He gives up revenue from the land. He gives up servants who should be working for him. And he says, I want to feed you from at my own table. I'm giving up provisions that, I, that are for me. And I'm going to give them up for you. You had no worth, but now you're worthy. And it's the king's love and power and influence and authority over all things that make Mephibosheth worthy. There is nothing Mephibosheth could do to gain that worth in his own strength. The worth comes from the king. So we talked about the king making him welcomed. We talked about the king making him worthy. And this is the last thing I want to talk about. The king, knowing the king changes everything. Knowing the king changes everything. There was nothing Mephibosheth could do to raise his social status, his financial circumstances, his life aspirations. He's a poor, dirty, desperate beggar. He meets the king and everything changes. How odd would it have been for Mephibosheth to be like, nah, man, I'm good. I'm okay. No thanks. I want to stay right here, scraping by, just kind of barely making it. That's not what happens when you meet the king. Meeting the king changes everything. And this is where we make a little bit of a transition. As great as this story is, and as great as David is, he's the greatest king of Israel. He's loved by people. He's beloved by God. But even David could only do so much. He could only meet physical needs that Mephibosheth had. We're supposed to read this story and see that David the king points to another king. Have you all picked up on that yet? David is a picture of Christ in this story, and whether we like it or not, we're Mephibosheth. We're the homeless guy on the beach. But the reason that I love this story so much is because Christ our King meets all of our needs, including spiritual ones that David could never touch. So we start looking at this and we say, all right, what king sacrificed his life to make a dirty, destitute, and desperate beggar with nothing to offer, welcomed and worthy. Without Christ the king, we are nothing. But meeting the king changes everything. We move from death to life, and we can't do it on our own. We meet the king, and nothing is ever the same. We are that term. We are Mephibosheth. I'm a dead dog until you meet the king. So a couple questions. Are you spiritually hobbling through life, poor and desperate, an enemy of the king? Or have you met the only one in the world who can change your life? The king who wants to welcome you 
and lift you up and say, you're not a dead dog. You're my son. You're my daughter. If you haven't met the king, Jesus, today could be the day. There are people all over this church. There are staff here. There are people literally, you know, watching on live stream. Wherever you are, there are people in your life that would love to introduce you to Jesus the king. You can send something to the church office. If you're not here, you could drop something in. You can talk to some of the staff. You can come up and talk to me. So that's one question. Have you met the king who changes everything? Another question could be, hey, what's an appropriate response once you meet the king? When we see the king rightly, we thank him for making us welcomed and worthy. We bend our knees to praise him, and we seek ways to introduce him to others. What what do you think happens if you look back in the text? It mentions uh, that Mephibosheth has a son. What do you think happened in verse 12 when he goes back? to Lodabar and he interacts with his son and his son's probably you know it's like dad like we said our goodbyes like I never thought I'd see you again you, you took off to go to the palace the king called for you what's going on you're back here and Mephibosheth says yeah wasn't a big deal I met the king We actually need to pack up our stuff. We're moving to the palace. That's not what he says. That shouldn't be our response. It it really can't be our response when we meet the king. He's not just an okay guy. He's not just helpful. No, he sang his praises and told his son how awesome the king is. He says, grab your stuff. We have a new home. We're no longer enemies of the king. We're his sons. This is unreal, but we're always going to sit at this table. He's provided land and people to work the land. We have money. Our needs are being met. This king is amazing. I can't wait to introduce you to him. I pray that's our response as well. This morning, we met Mephibosheth. I'm praying that as you leave here, you think about the king of kings. You remember that you are welcome in his presence and that he has taken your life and he's made it worthy. I pray that you're excited about this king and that you'll take every opportunity to introduce your family, your coworkers, your friends, your classmates to this king because Jesus the king changes everything. Let me pray. Father, I confess at times uh, it is easy for me to forget that I was Mephibosheth, that I was stumbling through life the best that I could, hiding sin and shame and guilt and dirt in my life. Sometimes I still do. But Father, you and your good plan sent a king who gave up everything to make me welcomed in his presence. He knows my name. He has a name. It's Jesus. He's not a distant king. He has authority. He has power, but he is very personal. And he speaks my name, and he allows me to call him Jesus. And meeting him changes everything.
Father, I pray for this church. I pray for the community here. I pray that we would be little Mephibosheths walking around town talking people about the great thing that happened when we met the king. Make it happen. In your name we pray. Amen.